0: You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key US and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a Principal with Washington National Tax and Tax Industry Lead for US International Corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. For a long time, we've seen discussions of value in the international tax and transfer pricing space. What assets, risks, and functions are where? What kind of enterprise value do they drive? What taxable income should be attributed to those factors? And people have always been a big part of the value discussion. And while the way we look at people and their enterprise value has morphed a little bit over time, these changes haven't necessarily been evolutionary leaps. And today, we're going to talk about a set of rules, the Canadian Provincial Pay Equity Rules, that take a very different approach to valuing people within an organization. So this one's a real twist, and joining me today is my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an International Tax Principal from our Detroit office, Lisa Cable, Head of Labor and Employment from KPMG Law in Canada, and Julie Kushner. An International Tax Managing Director from our New York Value Chain Management Practice.
1: So thank you, Kim, and thank you ladies for joining us. We've got an interesting discussion today, I know, and it's venturing a bit into the people space again. We've seen that in a couple of our previous episodes, one where we talked about Mexican labor reform and work from anywhere. And I think we're seeing more and more where the people issues and the tax issues are really coming together as we think about the functions.
0: Julie, you work with transfer pricing folks quite a bit, and in doing so, you'll benchmark value, including the value of people. Can you describe what factors you're taking into account?
2: Yeah, so if you think about how we go about establishing an arm's length return for the various parts of the enterprise and what might be high value or more routine, we may do a value chain analysis. And through that, we would understand those functions, assets, and risks, in the enterprise, and also the value drivers of the business. And then we ask how the two align and where the value driving functions are located. It's very important to understand the value of the different roles and activities so that we can understand how to price them. We're also thinking about the value of jobs. When we think about the tax implications of this workforce and employees in various locations, we would look at the activities housed in a particular legal entity, and then think about doing a comparability analysis and doing benchmarking to assess what the appropriate return is, the arm's length return for those services is, and that's what that legal entity would earn.
0: Great. So, Julie, what is DEMPI and and how does that play into the tax analysis?
2: DEMPI is really a substance requirement, The OECD said that we look to DEMPI functions, and not just contractual rights, to determine which entity is entitled to the profit associated with certain intangibles. So effectively, you're compensating the enterprise based on who undertakes the development, enhancement, maintenance, protection, and exploitation of intangibles. That's DEMPI.
0: Okay, and this is only with respect to IP?
2: The idea that came out of the OECD was focused on IP, but it has been more broadly applied to management-level roles and important roles within a company. These activities are what we in TAX associated as high-value activities, and the question is, where in the enterprise do the responsibilities lie for each of these high-value activities? even in the beat scenarios over the last couple of years.
0: We've been trying to look at what people are doing and then assign this high value, low value label to them based on what they do.
1: I think that we have always looked to the people and more of their functions, like you said. But I think now there is very much an increased focus on the value associated with those functions. No more can we just say, hey, we've got these group of people, here's their comp, I'm just going to have a straight cost plus associated with their comp costs. I really need to dig in a bit more and understand what they're doing and ascribe a value to the organization of the activities that they're doing. If you think about the guilty rate and pulling QBI out,
0: a QBI return is just a routine return based on your capital assets. There's no routine return, at least from a guilty perspective, that is allocated to people. The routine return that is guilty protected is
1: all asset-based. Isn't that weird? I would agree. It's interesting to see, right, the crux of the rules is really trying to get at that value and otherwise unlocking it, where we see the asset value maybe just being table stakes at the end of the day.
0: Oh, that's a really good way to put that. Another way of thinking, you've referenced the cost plus benchmarking of intercompany services, and in doing that, you're thinking about what they're doing or what they're labeled as doing. Do you care how much training? Do you care about characteristics?
2: So for sure, our analysis from a tax perspective is around roles and responsibilities, However, we definitely pay attention to qualifications and titles and skill levels. And a good example of that is in a controversy context. If we're reviewing certain roles and responsibilities that support, for example, a principal company structure, and we would maybe question the level of the roles and whether they're senior enough to be taking on those responsibilities, In the end, it comes down to what are the true roles and responsibilities that are being undertaken. But all those other things like qualifications and skills and titles and even compensation can support or put into question that structure.
0: So from the tax perspective, it sounds like what people are doing or what they're supposed to be doing is something of a proxy for how the enterprise and the tax authorities value them. But let's change tracks a little bit because I think it's fair to say that these pay equity rules in Canada go a little bit more directly at how an enterprise values people. So, Lisa, Canada has pay equity requirements and thinks about pay equity really differently
3: from the way I think I at least have always heard pay equity principles expressed I think the Canadian approach is unique it's not just about valuing equal pay for the same job between men and women the Canadian regime looks at really a goal to ensure that employees are being paid equally for doing work of equal value and it's purely based on gender in a comparison between jobs that are traditionally female versus jobs that are traditionally male, so we're not looking at the same jobs. So Lisa, what was the genesis of these rules? The historical example that's often used when we talk about the concept of equal pay for work of equal value is that comparison between a nurse and the maintenance person within the hospital or a technician within the hospital or like custodian. Then it was in the 1980s where we start to see some case law from our divisional court in Ontario about that idea of, no, it's more than just equal pay for the same job. It's equal pay for work of equal value. Then there was a period where mid to late 80s where there was a conversation about what does pay equity mean? How do you value it? Does there have to be a job to job comparator? hmm. Or can you look at what we call proportional comparison, where you're looking at the different roles? That it doesn't, there's not an exact job to job comparison. The whole process is about decompressing a role and sort of drawing those comparisons between male and female. Generally speaking, to meet the minimum requirements and show that pay equity is achieved, first of all, you have to identify what job class is make up positions within the workplace, depending on duties, qualifications, recruiting procedures, access to compensation, range of salary and benefits. We wouldn't typically include an independent contractor, but it absolutely can include fixed-term contract employees, seasonal summer employees, part-time employees. And so once you get to your job classes, then you have to go through and determine Is it a predominantly male or predominantly female or neutral position? It can be your current state of employees who currently occupy the role, or you may look at it and take a broader view, maybe look at the history and how this has changed. So maybe it's male today, but traditionally it's been female, or we have industry standards. So there's some discretion built into the system then you determine the value of the work that's being done. Skill, effort, responsibility, and working conditions are four main categories that you look at to value and come up with a point system for each particular job. And once you have your points allocated, then you actually get into what are people paid. If you have male and female jobs that are similar, In terms of the point value, then that's where you compare the jobs and the compensation. If you've got the male job making significantly more than the female job, even though we've determined the value is similar, then you're offside. The legislation and adjustments will have to be made.
0: The way I would have always thought about pay equity is you take one job and you look at the men and the women or the diverse versus non-diverse folks that are within that one job the same job. Are you paying the diverse and the non-diverse folks the same? Mm -hmm. Uh, Going back to the nurse versus the custodial staff, those are two, in my mind, very different jobs. But it makes sense you're basically breaking the jobs down into the characteristics that individuals would need to perform those jobs, even if say one of those jobs needed to have a greater amount of an education and experience, but the other was much more physical. You're scoring everything and then you're adding up the scores. Even if the jobs could look very different, if the scores are the same, then you compare across jobs
1: Thinking about it from a value perspective, I can see where you could get to very different answers, even for the same job. An Mm -hmm. IT person in one organization is going to have a very different value based on how that business operates than maybe in another one. That's right. If you're negotiating salaries or compensation,
0: I guess you could get to pay equity one of two ways. You could raise the diverse employee's compensation, or you could lower the non-diverse employees' compensation, are you stuck from a legal liability perspective
3: with only yeah. thing You can't decrease him. You have to mm-hmm. increase her. That's right. Yeah. And actually, there's a public sector hospital case where the operating room technicians and the registered nurse assistants were performing work of equal value mm-hmm. compared to the value of the carpenter role which was the male job class. And there was only one individual in that job class. And there was a letter of understanding in the collective agreement that said that person's kind of red circled here. This is their rate of pay. The union challenged it under the pay equity regime and said, you've got to increase these technicians to the carpenter role. And they tried to reduce the carpenter role in order to align with the technicians. Tribunal said that this would have completely defeated the purpose of the pay equity legislation. You can't do that. You have to increase the award for the female jobs. So you better get it right. So how far does that extend? Is it limited by like a statute of limitations? It does vary depending on the jurisdiction. And if there's a plan in place and if there's something that went wrong, typically it would be two years. Two years is the general limitation period. However, that's not always the case. And if an employer hasn't Put in place the pay equity regime or for a long period of time hasn't updated it and they've just sort of let things go and there's an award. It could go back to the beginning of the legislation, like 1987, for example, in Ontario. (laughs) There are limits on the amount that can be paid out. The commission may make the order, but it's limited to 2% of your overall payroll to be paid out over time, right? But it eventually gets paid and it can include former employees. I've seen awards where the tribunal has ordered the company to put an ad in the newspaper for a period of time to make sure that you're capturing former employees so that they can get paid. Do people look at this in due diligence when they acquire Canadian companies? Um, Great question. No. They they typically (laughs) no.
2: Yeah, but they
3: should. Okay. In, in, in they, right? <laughs> um, they should. If there's a significant restructuring, there is an obligation to look at your pay equity and see if you need to redo any of, of the assessment. And I would include in that significant changes, like, yeah, if you're your remote work and if everybody's moving in different jurisdictions and you've got people moving around, that could in and of itself trigger the potential of having to redo some of the pay equity review.
1: Lisa, so it looks like these rules have been around for a long time. Can you walk us through what's happening most recently?
3: So legislation has been around for quite some time Hmm. and across the country really applied to the public sector. It wasn't until 1987 that we saw Ontario... Introduced legislation for the private sector and applied to more than 10 employees. Quebec is the only other jurisdiction in Canada that has legislation that applies to private sector. Federal legislation, which applies to federally regulated companies in the private sector, will actually come into force August 31st of this year. Oh, so right around the corner. Transportation, airline, banks that before did not have to adhere to any kind of pay equity regime now do. Are the mm-hmm.
1: banks and financials now required to make that publicly available?
3: The posting requirements are within the workplace, but it has to be accessible to all employees. There's no requirement to publicly disclose it. I do think, though, there are companies who, once they do their reviews and reach pay equity, may want to disclose that. hmm
0: Certainly from a competitive perspective, word is going to get around. And (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it'll be public one way or another, as long as you have to post it anywhere.
1: You might as well, because you've got the ESG initiatives out there anyway, right? So I have to do this. I might as well take credit for the fact that I'm doing it and make sure that my story is out there and consistent. It seems like you pull in a huge number of employers when you're talking about only 10
3: Right. You're talking really large numbers. And then when you think about the federal legislation that's coming into play, one stat that I read recently is that the government anticipates that the Pay Equity Act is going to result in about $2 billion of increases and adjustments between 2020 and 2029. Oh, my um, God. So we're, yeah, it's huge because huge it does really capture a tremendous amount of employers within the federal sector.
0: In the pay equity space, I always think of equal pay for equal work,
3: which is effectively
0: the transfer pricing space. It's a little bit of a pivot, but equal pay for equal value is honestly, to me, strangely compelling. I don't think it comports with the stream of tax history, but I do think it's super interesting. <laughs>
2: What I was thinking about as you were talking through that is just that, you know, the DEMPY analysis and how when we think about value through a tax lens, it's in some ways more of an art than a science. It's not so straightforward. You're talking about subjectivity maybe in the labor analysis. I think that applies to our tax analysis as well there's a level of subjectivity involved in applying the standard and the standard itself is still somewhat new and it applies differently in different countries, in different industries and under different company facts. It's very mathematical.
0: It's something that kind of devolves or lends itself significantly to spreadsheet or technology type of solution because it's very quantitative. Whereas this tax analysis seems a little bit squishier, a little bit more qualitative, but I start worrying because when value is squishy and more of an arts, I worry that someone with a scientific
2: answer may win the day. It does though also raise the question of in practice, how companies are going to comply and the amount of data that they need to collect and analyze in order to do this. And then to what extent this information and how quickly it makes it to the tax authorities and how tax authorities leverage that information. And I think from a practical
1: perspective, what we run into then is, boy, I could really create some challenges for my organization, because like Lisa told us, we can bring the women up, but we can't bring the men down. There's a chance there that we could have increased costs within the organization. In order to get people on equal footing for pay equity purposes.
0: Yeah, and so <laughs> no, no. you end up like with this transfer pricing adjustment, and it's not even from the people who would ordinarily hand you that bill. It's not the tax authorities that are saying, you need to increase your cost base. It's the labor authorities saying that, and then tax is just, just going to say, yeah, yep, 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 and just collect mm-hmm. the check. Yep,
2: agree. agree. It's also, in a way, not a new concept. It's kind of akin to when we speak to businesses and we're undertaking this value chain analysis. From a business perspective, every part of this value chain is just as important as the next. Customer service may be just as important as the strategy setting up front from a business perspective because you need every piece of that value chain in order for the business to succeed. But we look at it through a tax lens, and from a tax perspective, we put a certain emphasis on these strategic decision-making activities, these DEMPY-type activities, and so we might get a different result in terms of what drives value from a tax perspective than a business perspective. So if I've
1: got a company who runs call centers, the employees who actually do the calls, they're pretty central to the business. That is the business right? But Julie, as I think about from a BM perspective, those aren't very high value folks. I'm just wondering if there's a good example that Lisa would think about that totally differently than Julie
2: might. I mean, we may not typically focus on shared services or call center type activities as significant value driving activities. But I guess if Lisa's analysis came up with some very important value attributed to some of these activities, then we would have to deal with the implications of not having them centralized or driven from where profits are being realized. At least the takeaway for me is that this labor law and the Canadian government, they are coming up with some interesting metrics Mm -hmm. for these labor roles. And they may not all translate into the same metric that we look at from a tax perspective. Or maybe it's a similar metric like roles and responsibilities, but we might analyze it a little bit differently from a tax perspective. But in either case, the point is that every metric would be relevant to determining what drives value. So if the Canadian government has identified these metrics, we should at least find a way to make sure we're aligned and informed when we're undertaking that tax analysis. Yep, right. agree.
0: So BEPS 2.0 has us rethinking the value drivers of an enterprise. The location of consumers, not just producers, is becoming meaningful for the first time in income tax history. Now, assets, risks, and functions have always been focal points for the tax discussion. But what happens the day that tax authorities realize that at least in some contexts, enterprises value front lines and behind-the-scenes employees equally? Food for thought. And in the meantime, be good, stay well, speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.